chapter 7. And if you need a Bible, just um, give some kind of a signal. I see that hand. God bless you. I see that. No, just kidding. <laughs> Revelation chapter 7. Now, in our last study together, we kind of crossed into a kind of a subsection, a new subsection of here, this book of Revelation. We find ourselves in the third breakdown, if you would, the future events, the things which are yet to be. And as we started chapter 6, we began this period of time biblically known as the tribulation. We saw the Lamb, who of course is Jesus Christ there in heaven, bearing the marks of the suffering that he endured on our behalf. And he took the scroll, which was the title deed of the earth, that was sealed with seven seals, out of the hand of him that sat upon the throne. And the multitude of the church, who at this time is in heaven, and of the angelic beings were there worshiping the Lord as he took this scroll, the only one that was worthy to meet the conditions necessary for redemption. And as the Lamb took the scroll and broke the first seal, on earth, the time period known as the tribulation began. A seven-year period of time where God is going to pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world, a time when God is going to again deal with and seek to restore and redeem Israel that so long ago rejected their Messiah and was not rejected and cast off, but was pushed to the background, preserved miraculously. But yet, as God built the church, dealt with the bride, the age of grace... Israel was in the background, but just as God told the prophet Ezekiel that in the last days, Israel would become a national entity. They would again regain their national identity in the last days. And we've seen that happen. And during the tribulation, God will again deal with the nation of Israel, seeking to restore them and redeem the remnant, even as we'll see partially taking place in our study here tonight. And also this time of the tribulation, its purpose is to be that last effort of God to reach those people that have hardened their hearts that need yet to be saved. And so the lamb breaks the seal and the tribulation begins the seven years of judgment upon planet earth. Three sets of seven judgments make up this seven year period of time. First, As we saw last week, the seven seals. Every time the lamb breaks another one of the seals on that scroll, there's an event, a correlating event that takes place on planet earth. And so we saw the first four seals broken and the four horsemen of the apocalypse released. And through the terror that they wreak upon the earth, one quarter of the world's population is smitten during the time of the first four seals being broken, the very first part of the tribulation. The fifth seal released, or or we saw a vision of the souls of those that had been slain, some of the tribulation saints that were there under the altar, waiting for the time when their blood would be avenged for the rest of those that would be martyred to also join them there. And we see that vision as the fifth seal is broken. And then as the sixth seal is broken, we see a cataclysmic event taking place wherein the stars of the heavens fall, the heavens are rolled up as a scroll, the mountains and the islands are removed out of their places, and and, and just something that is so earth-shattering that all of the people on the earth, from the greatest to the least, hide themselves in the rocks and in the caves of the earth, crying out to be hidden from the wrath of the Lamb. Because they know that the time of his wrath has come and that they can't escape the wrath. And so we saw in chapter 6, the first six seals of that title deed loosed and the judgments that corresponded uh, with them. But now, as we come into chapter 7, what we have in front of us is what we'll call a parenthetic passage. The seventh seal 
of this seven sealed scroll is not broken until we get to chapter 8, verse 1. So all of the events that we see and happen in chapter 7 are parenthetic, if you would. They're kind of a, a sidebar, uh, a, you know, background commentary, if you would, other things that John saw. And here in this chapter, John gives to us two things. First of all, he gives to us a glimpse of the Jewish remnant that are saved and sealed during the tribulation time. If you would, or if you're taking notes, you could call it the sealing of God's servants. And then the second thing that happens is that we see the multitude of those that are martyred during the tribulation now granted access into the full privileges and blessings of being there. If you recall in the fifth seal, the souls were under the altar. But by this time that we get to the second half of chapter 7, we see them there in their full um, privileged position there before the throne of God. Now, as we go through and continue on in the book of Revelation, you'll notice that there are, there are several of these parenthetic type passages or chapters that really they don't correspond with any of the specific seals or trumpets or bowls that we'll be reading about, but they're just other kind of information that's given to us. And oftentimes it's these parenthetic passages that we see that we find that cause people to be somewhat confused about revelation itself it's these passages that cause people to kind of just say you know what we can't understand that that's it's too mysterious it's too mystical it's too unknowable it might be helpful to you to us to kind of understand the relationship between time as it stands on planet earth and time in heaven because it it, it just helps a lot genesis chapter 1 verse 1 tells us this It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And right there in that fundamental sentence of biblical truth, we have the creation of three things. Time, in the beginning. Space, God created the heavens. And matter, and the earth. So time, space, and matter, the three dimensions that we operate within, were all created in the very first breath. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Time as we know it on earth, space being the heavens, and earth being matter. And we understand, we relate to all of those types of things. Now time, as we understand it, that is the remaining minutes that I have to share this Bible study with you, you know, and then the amount of hours that you will then need in order to be able to function in a sober capacity tomorrow, you know, all of that, the time element of our lives that we understand it only exists to us. It's determined by the rotation of the earth on its axis and the revolution of the earth around the sun. And and in those things, we get our clock. We get what we would call time and how it relates to the way we live. Now, it's almost impossible for us to think about what life would be like without time. For us, everything is measured in time. Everything we do has a beginning and an end. Every day has a beginning and an end. Every month, every year. Every season, whether it be seasons, uh, you know, as the seasons of, of, you know, fall and winter or the seasons of our life, they have a beginning, they have an ending. Many of us have that magnet on our refrigerator that says, this too shall pass. Again, a reference to time, that this is just for a time. Every situation and circumstance of our lives has a beginning and an end. Every term of employment, every assignment, everything we do somehow brings us into this uh, kind of relationship with time. And we measure everything by time in some way. We ask, how old are you? It's It's a measurement of time. How long have you been married? And we determine the experience of someone in their marriage or in their employment by the amount of time that they've been doing it. How many years do you have in? How long are you in school for? When will we be finished here tonight? Everything that we do has some relationship to time. And every area of our lives are governed and dictated by time. And therefore, it's almost impossible for us to imagine life without time. Now, in heaven, 
There is no time as we know it. The universe that God spoke into existence in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is separate from where God dwells. So when God said in the beginning, in the initiation of time took place in this universe that we live within, it was separate from where God existed and what God operates within. It's interesting, you know, people ask the question oftentimes, who created God? And what they're, at, what they're doing by asking that question is they're somehow trying to chain God to the same restraints of time that we are chained to. Because for us, everything has to have a beginning and an ending. So when we take and we put our conditions then back upon God, we can only conclude that God must also have a beginning, but not so. Because you see, there is no time in heaven. And so therefore, God can be eternal. He can always have been because there is no beginning if there is no time. Do you understand? There's no clocks in heaven. Actually, that's, that's not exactly true. And I'll tell you how I know that. Because I had this dream, right? (laughs) And in my dream, I I was there. I was in heaven and I was driving around on St. Peter's golf cart. Can you believe it? He has a golf cart. It's a good one. And he said, I want to show you something. And he took me into this room. And in this room, there there was clocks everywhere. But they were all moving at different speeds. And so I, I asked him, I said, well, what are these clocks and what do they mean? What is this? And he said, well, he says, there's a clock in this room for every person that's on earth. And every single time they sin, it ticks one tick. And so I observed and I looked around and I saw all these clocks moving at at different speeds. And I saw Pete's clock. Tick, 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 you know, tick. And I saw Bobby's clock, you know, You know, and then I saw George's clock. And I said, Lord, that is fascinating. I said, Lord, I, I, I need to know where, where's, where's my clock? And he said, oh, your clock? We use that in the office for a fan. Uh, <laughs> no, but really, there are no clocks in heaven... Because there's no time in heaven. He has no beginning and he has no ending. Now that's impossible on earth, but it's not impossible in heaven. And so therefore, when you're thinking of all of these things from an eternal perspective, it means that God looks at the entire timeline of human history from the perspective of the Goodyear blimp. Meaning that from his vantage point, he sees both the beginning and the ending all at once. And all of the events that take place upon the timeline that we are trapped in, he can see from his vantage point all at once. So time, as we know it, has a completely different meaning when you bring it into the heavenly realm. Now what John is giving to us here in the book of Revelation... He's telling us what he saw when he was given the privilege of seeing this vision. But the disadvantage that he has is that he is bouncing back and forth between events on earth and things in heaven. And therefore, it becomes very challenging, probably for John who's writing, and sometimes perhaps for us who are reading, because there's a break in the relationship between the two sets of time, if you would. Things on earth are bound by strict time, seven years of tribulation. But things in heaven are measured by events, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And that's our link to chronology in terms of what's taking place when in the tribulation from a heavenly perspective. On earth, we can look at it in time, three and a half years in the first half, three and a half years in the second half, the beginning, the middle, and the end. But In heaven, it's a much different thing. Therefore, John now, in this vision, he sees the things that we're reading about in chapter 7 between the 6th and the 7th seal in the chronology of his observation. However, we're not exactly sure when these things take place in the chronology on earth. Do you understand? 
Because the first thing that he's going to see in this vision is the sealing of the servants. God is going to mark and seal those that are set apart of the Jewish remnant for his purposes during the tribulation. That is an event that no doubt happens very early on in the tribulation time. But then John also sees the multitude of the martyred tribulation saints standing around the throne in heaven. And that is an event that probably doesn't take place until later on in the tribulation period of time. But yet they're here in this chapter together because they are very relatable to each other. The sealing of God's servants for the purpose of preaching the gospel, reaching those that will still yet be saved... And then the fruit of their ministry in those that are gathered there around the throne. So although they perhaps are separated by a span of time on earth, in heavenly terms they are very related. And so therefore in chapter 7, John gives to us this parenthetic passage. Now all of that to say that when we come to these parenthetic passages, don't get confused. I'll remind you again, it's wise to have a file in your mind. Wait for more information. That when you see something, when you hear something, and you can't quite pin it down or understand it, don't discard it and say, it doesn't make sense, I'm just not going to pay attention. Just slide it into that mental file that says, wait for more information. And I'm telling you, you'll be reading Joel, you'll read Zechariah, you'll read something that Jesus spoke in the Gospels, and it'll click, and you'll be able to take that out of that file and place it then where it goes. So John here in this Vision that he sees, chapter 7, verse 1, he says, After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now some critics of the Bible will take a hold of this verse and they'll say, See, the Bible is scientifically inaccurate. We know now that the earth doesn't have four corners. You know, back in John's day, they still thought the earth was flat. And so therefore, the Bible isn't true. It isn't perfect. Not so. See, when it talks about the four corners of the earth, it's speaking of it in terms of quadrants. And that we do understand. North, south, east, and west. You know, the Marines tell us that they're in the four corners of the earth. We understand what they mean by that. It's symbolic language. In fact, the Bible's so scientifically accurate concerning this flat earth, round earth conundrum that many years, thousands of years before Christopher Columbus sailed around and determined that it must be a spherical shape, the prophet Isaiah spoke in chapter 40, verse 22. And he speaks of God as being the one who sits enthroned upon the circle of the earth. The prophet, thousands of years before it was scientifically discovered, declares by the Spirit of God, because God knew all along that the world was a sphere. Jesus, when he was talking about the time of his coming, he said that in one instant there would be some people on the planet that would be grinding out the morning meal at the mill. And yet there would be other people that would be in bed and other people in the middle of their workday. Well, how could that be possible? If the world is round, Jesus knew that it was, see, So the Bible nowhere purports that the earth is flat. And here, this is not a reference to a flat earth. It's a reference to the four quadrants. And we know that because it's in reference to the winds. Let me ask you, which directions do the winds blow? North, east, west, and south, right? Those are the four basic directions that winds blow. And there's an angel holding back each of the winds during this time. Interesting. It's interesting, isn't it? No wind during the time of the tribulation period? Four angels that are appointed and set for this very purpose of simply doing nothing else other than holding back the wind? Well, we're told in chapter 11, when we get there, we meet these two mysterious men, these two prophets, these two witnesses that God is going to send. And that the length of their ministry is 42 months or the first three and a half years of the tribulation period on earth. And the Bible tells us that they have power, they're given authority, that it it does not reign during the time of their prophecy. 
So we already know that there's not going to be any rain during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. There will be worldwide famine. We saw in the seal judgments that when the rider on the black horse went forth, it says that he had a pair of scales in his hand and he declared, he heard a voice that said a measure of wheat for a penny or for a day's wage. So we know that there's going to be famine during the first half of the tribulation period. The fourth horseman of the apocalypse is released and it says that he is given power to kill a quarter of the earth's population and one of the weapons that he's to use is hunger. So you have this time when there's absolutely no wind blowing anywhere on the planet. And if you don't have wind, you don't have rain. Because rain is caused by the mixing of the warm, humid air masses and the cooler air masses. And as they come together and condensation takes place in the atmosphere and the water then, of course, rains out. The, the, the rain is response, or, you know, um, due to these mixing of these cold and warm air masses. But there are no mixing of air masses during this time. We know that it won't rain for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And the result of this, these angels holding back this wind, is going to be a time of severe famine upon the earth. Interesting. You recall in the story of Joseph. You remember when Jacob had his 12 sons and the the jealous brothers sold Joseph to Egypt. And we don't have time to get into the whole story, but Joseph was given the privilege of foreseeing a famine that was coming upon that part of the world in his day. That seven years of great plenty would be followed by seven years of great famine. And he was appointed by Pharaoh, given the signet ring and great authority to tax the people 20% of all of their crops for the seven plenteous years so that there would be food stored up. During the seven years of famine that would follow. And sure enough when the famine hit. The famine hit hard. And so bad was it there. When there was no rain in that region. That two times in two years. Jacob who was there back living in Canaan. With the rest of his family. Had to send his sons. To go and buy corn from Joseph. Genesis chapter 45 verse 6 says that at the time that Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, it was only two years into the famine. So if you can imagine, not just a localized famine in that part of the world, but a global famine where there's no rain for the first three and a half, at least the first three and a half years of the tribulation, what it's going to be like on planet earth, the the, the size of that famine. The population today, no doubt, being much greater than it was even in that day. And the effects of that famine just wreaking havoc upon the people. So much to the point where it says that they will die of hunger. People will not be able to sustain themselves because of the lack of food during that time. But you know, as I was reading this, it came into my mind, you know, I wonder. I wonder if, just like in Joseph's day. There was a man in Joseph's day whom they said the spirit of God is in him because he came up with a solution. He foresaw the coming night and he stored away food for the time of this dreadful famine. I wonder if there's a man, a man who'll come on the scene, a man whom the world will look at and wonder and marvel and say he's a man who foresaw the coming famine. And look, he stored up great abundances of food. And all we need to do is pledge our allegiance to him and to his system and receive his mark of identity upon us so that we have access to these storehouses of food that he has stored up. I wonder if perhaps there's a counterfeit coming in those days. It's something to think about, something to think through. But no doubt the the wind will be ceased, the famine will be great. And you know, just think, without wind, what the atmospheric conditions will be like. It will make clean air a real problem. Right now, where I'm working, I'm kind of in this tunnel. And it's, you know, kind of underground, and it's kind of weird, you know, without getting into all of it. But but when there's breeze, you know, when there's wind in the air, it's kind of... It's tolerable because, you know, we're drilling holes in concrete and all the rest. And, you know, there's a lot of dust that gets into the air. And as long as there's a breeze, it's not so bad because it kind of clears out. It moves around. But when the weather is really still, as it has been prior to these rains that we've had, 
The air quality in there gets real bad. You got to wear a dust mask, you know, and, and, and you can see it when you look down into the lights. You can see all the dust that's suspended in the air. And you don't want to breathe too much of that. There's, there's nothing to wash it out. And we see all of these things happen during the tribulation, these, you know, things hitting the earth, these cataclysmic events taking place. And yet there will be nothing in order to clean the air out. It's just the atmospheric conditions are going to be really tough during that time. God's going to get into a lot of trouble with the EPA and the DEC and the DEP, you know. In fact, I firmly believe that the reason why the rapture hasn't happened yet is because God hasn't been able to get the permits. And he's trying real hard, but it's, and as soon as he gets them, we're out of here. You know, he's clearing through those roadblocks, you know, as we speak. But, but he holds back the winds of the earth. And then in verse 2, it says, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, neither the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So God at this point, and this is probably very early on in the tribulation, he sends an angel with the seal of God in his hand in order to seal or to set his mark upon his servants and to begin to separate Or make a distinction between those that belong to God and those that don't. Now chapter 14 verse 1 tells us what the seal is. In chapter 14 verse 1 it tells us that they have the name of their God written in their foreheads. So the seal of God is the mark of his identity upon their lives. They'll be given the seal. It's the name of our God. It's interesting, isn't it, that in chapter 13, those that make their allegiance with the beast or with the Antichrist, they also receive a seal or a mark in their forehead. It tells us it's the number of his name. And so you see this distinction that's drawn out between the servants of God with his name written in their head and the servants of Antichrist that will also be sealed that have his name written in their head, that number 666. You recall from the story of the Exodus when God began to, you know, stir up and move his people because he was going to bring them out of the land. And he sent Moses into Pharaoh and he told Pharaoh, let my people go. And as Pharaoh hardened his heart and was calloused against the command of God, God began to send plagues and judgments upon the land of Egypt. Plagues of flies, of locusts, of lice of frogs, of, you know, disease and of darkness so great that it could be felt. And all of these plagues came upon the land of Egypt. But yet there was a distinction between the Egyptians and between God's people. Over and over again, it tells us that there was flies in the crops and the fields and in the homes of the Egyptians, but not in the lands of the Hebrews. There was darkness over Egypt, but there was light in the land of Goshen. And God was able to seal and protect his people from the plagues that were coming upon the rest of Egypt during that time when God was working his purpose and setting his people free. And we see the same thing taking place here at the beginning of the tribulation as God separates his servants and puts his seal in their forehead and utters the words that they be not hurt by the plagues and by the things that will be taking place upon the planet earth. Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Well, who are these servants of God? He tells us in verse 4. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the Calvary Chapel churches. I mean, of all the Jehovah's Witnesses. No, wait. My eyes are getting a little, a little bad. No, listen. It's very clear. In fact, it doesn't get any clearer than what it says right there, does it? 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, I can't tell you how many groups have claimed that they are, in fact, the 144,000. 
Of course, the Jehovah's Witness, the Watchtower Society, they claim that they are the 144,000. Of course, being presented with that very problem that they have way more than 144,000 people in their organization. Um, If you want to read a good book on them, it's called 30 Years of Watchtower Slave. It's not a big read, but if you want to kind of understand the framework of their their structure and and what they've done, um, that's an excellent, excellent way to kind of get a handle on on where they're at. And it's written from a very good perspective of someone who was in it for 30 years. So 30 years of Watchtower Slave. But but let me tell you right now, they're not the 144,000 that John saw sealed uh, at this time. Years ago, there was Herbert W. Armstrong. He led the cult that was the children of God, and they also claimed to be the 144,000. And almost every cult or super spiritual sect of Christianity ultimately veers into this arena of thinking, believing, and preaching that they are, in fact, the 144,000 that John is speaking of here. The problem with that is that John is very, very clear about who it is that these 144,000 are of the children of the tribes of Israel. Now, he doesn't stop there in his explanation because he goes on now and he specifically lists the tribes by name and gives the specific number out of each specific tribe are are listed and mentioned there. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that are there. We know who these people are. These are Jews That God is again dealing with. Remember, another name that God gives for the tribulation time is the time of Jacob's trouble. Because this is that 70th week of Daniel where God again deals with thy people and thy holy city. This is is Israel's time. God's dealing with them. And so it stands to reason very obviously that these 144,000 are Israelites. Literal Jews that literally exist, that God knows what tribe they're affiliated with. And so it's Jews, 144,000 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there were actually 13 tribes of Israel. You recall when Jacob finally came down to Egypt to Joseph with all of his family members. And about the time that Jacob was about to die, Joseph brought his two sons Ephraim and Manasseh to Jacob for him to bless them. And at that time, Jacob claimed the lives of those two sons. He said, these two sons of yours are mine. Any sons that you have after these can be yours, but these two are mine. And he claimed Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. Now he had already had 12 sons. When the 12 tribes are listed, however, Levi is often left out because Levi had no inheritance in the land. The Lord was to be his portion. They were the priests. They had a special privilege in place. And so therefore, Levi was often left out. But then Ephraim and Manasseh took the place of Joseph. And therefore, you have the 12 tribes of Israel, Levi often unmentioned. However, in this list, you have Joseph mentioned And the tribe of Dan is omitted. Ephraim is implied by the presence of the name of Joseph. Manasseh is listed by name. And Levi is also listed here in this list, often being left out and negated. But Dan is mysteriously omitted. Where is the tribe of Dan in this list? Some have speculated that perhaps the reason why Dan is not included here is because the tribe of Dan was the first of the 12 tribes to be given to idolatry and also to be carried away into captivity for their sin. And so therefore God you know, leaves them off of the list here as a mark against them for what they did in their history. It's possibility, but we don't know for sure. Others have suggested that perhaps the Antichrist will be a man who comes from the tribe of Dan. People ask, well, will the Antichrist be Jewish? Well, if the Jews are going to receive him as their Messiah, he better be. And Moses, furthermore, when Moses prophesied of the coming Messiah, he said, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up like unto me, and him shall you hear. Well, they rejected Jesus, but they still are yet looking for someone who is like Moses, one of their brethren, one of their own. So therefore, the Antichrist has to come from one of these 12 tribes, and some have suggested that perhaps the tribe of Dan it is. Again, we don't know, but we see here that Dan is omitted, interestingly. 
Another interesting thing that we notice there is that Judah is listed first. Reuben was the firstborn. And therefore, by right of inheritance, Reuben ought to have been mentioned first. But when you read Genesis and you hear of what happened, Reuben forfeited his place because he you know, got into a relationship with one of his father's concubines and kind of was kicked out. And Judah obtained the scepter. Jacob prophesying over Judah and saying the scepter of authority shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. And we understand David the king coming from the tribe of Judah and then ultimately Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah becoming the heir, if you would, through whom it would be. So Judah mentioned first. And then as these 12 tribes are listed, 12,000 from each of them are sealed. But then as we come into verse 9... Here, skipping down, we move from the servants of God that are sealed for the purpose of preaching, for the purpose of serving, for the purpose of evangelizing during the tribulation time. We now see the tribulation saints revealed around the throne. John says, after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Now here we see a very similar multitude to that which we saw on Palm Sunday in Luke chapter 19 as we read in the Gospels. Jesus made his descent from the Mount of Olives for the first time presenting himself to the nation as their Messiah sitting on the colt of a donkey you know as it's prophesied there in the Old Testament and the people begin to shout and they begin to cry Hosanna or you know salvation if you would much the same as these here. Hosanna means salvation. And they waved palm branches in their hand as Jesus was presented as their king. And here in heaven, we see a multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation, again, waving these palm branches and crying salvation or Hosanna. It's the same word there. They mean the same exact thing. And so we see this multitude that's there. But then in verse 11, we hear the response of the angelic beings... To the shout of the multitude that's there. It says, And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. That means, so be it. Blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might, be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, back in chapter 5, when we were looking at the church there gathered in heaven, you recall chapters 4 and 5 was the church in heaven. And the church, the 24 elders that were there, the representation of the, the, the full body, the entity of the church, as they gave their praise, their exclamation to the Lord. It says in verse 11 that John beheld and he heard the voice of many angels again round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor glory and blessing. So the response to these that are gathered here in chapter 7 is almost exactly The same as the response that was given in chapter 5 when the church was gathered there with the exception of one word that's different. In chapter 5, the angels use the word riches. And here they don't use the word riches. They simply say glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Now, why in chapter 5 would the word riches be used? And here it's left out. Is this just an error that they forget the words to the song, you know, where they just sang whatever came into their mind? Or, Or is there a reason for that? Interestingly, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Paul, as he was praying for the Ephesians and telling them what he was praying for them, he used this language. 
He says he's praying for them that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He says this, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In other words, Paul is saying that this is my prayer for you, Ephesians, that you would understand, that you would perceive that you are the riches and the glory of his inheritance. That the glory of his inheritance in the saints is his treasure. It is his riches. Jesus in the gospel, when he told those parables, the one about the pearl that was found in the field and also the treasure that was buried there. And he says that a man who is seeking goodly pearls found this pearl of great price. And desiring to have that pearl, he sold all that he had in order to obtain it. The second was like it, that a man found a treasure buried in a field and with joy he quickly hid the treasure and then he sold all that he had so that he could then purchase the field to obtain the treasure. And the man, of course, in the parable, it's not you and I selling all for Christ because we just don't. The man in the parable is Jesus who gave up all in order to obtain us. And Paul, praying for the Ephesians, hopes that they'll understand, that they'll realize how much God treasures you. How valuable you are to him. And so the church, as they're redeemed, as they're sealed there, they're in glory before Jesus, worshiping in heaven at the culmination of all things. The angels respond and say, glory and riches, and the treasure of God, it's here, it's sealed before him. But to this group that's gathered here in chapter 7, It isn't riches. And I point that out to you just to help you to see preliminarily, if that's a word, you know, that this is a different group of people. This isn't the same group of people that we saw gathered there in chapter 5. It's a separate entity. There's a different thing happening here as we come into chapter 7. And so, because God doesn't want us to be confused about who they are, he tells us. Verse 13, it says that one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? Hey, John, the elder kind of gives him an elbow. And he's not asking because he doesn't know, and he's hoping John will fill him in. It's a rhetorical question designed to get John to kind of want to find out, and also so that we'll know. He says, hey, John, who are these, and where do they come from? And John, it says in verse 14, he said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, now this is who they are. These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is a different group of people. It isn't one of the elders that, you know, is one of these people. John would recognize them. If this was the church, John would know full well. Oh, yeah, I know who these are. These are the church. These are, this is me. This is us. But John doesn't know who these people are. And it takes the prodding of the elder for John to ask or to discover. And he says that these are those that came out of the great tribulation. Now, you recall in, you know, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, when the fifth seal was opened, the souls of them that had been slain for their testimony were there bound under the altar waiting for the time of vengeance when they would then be brought into the fullness. And at that time, God told them, he said, wait until the full number of those that will be slain for the word of God is complete, and then the vengeance will be full. And at this time now, we see those tribulation saints, the multitude of them from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the earth that have given now their lives to Christ. They are now allowed into this full privilege Uh, there but notice that they hold a different position than the church and this is what i want you to see you've got to understand this look in verse 15 what it says about these people he says therefore and again whenever you see the word therefore you got to understand what it's there for right when he says therefore he's connecting what he just said previously to what he's going to say now These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes. 
Therefore, because they are tribulation saints, because they come out of tribulation, that these were not people that were raptured, these were not people that were a part of the church, but they are tribulation saints. Therefore, are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple? And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Notice that. He tells them that they are before the throne of God. Now, to the church, he said that he would grant to them, them that overcame, to sit with him in his throne. To the church, it's granted that we should rule and reign with Christ. But these are there before the throne of Christ. Not sitting with him in the throne, but they are before the throne. Second of all there, then it says that he that sits on the throne will dwell with them. But to the church, Revelation chapter 3 verse 21, he says to them it would be granted to them to sit with him in his throne. It's a different group of people. They have a different set of privileges. They hold a different place in heaven based upon the time that they gave their life to Christ. It's a much higher honor to be a part of the church. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe having not seen. Remember when Thomas said, Lord, my Lord and my God. And and Jesus said, you know, you're blessed, Thomas, but blessed are they who believed having not seen. And to you and I, the church, that we give our allegiance, our honor, our crowns to the Lord in this time now, prior to the rapture of the church, we will hold the position of the bride of Christ. We rule and reign with him with a rod of iron. We sit with him in his throne and we share that close capacity of knowing him in that intimate way. But these that come out of great tribulation, they'll be saved. Their robes will be washed in the blood of the lamb. They will shout and wave palm branches and say salvation and glory and honor to God in thanksgiving and they'll be thankful. But it tells us that they will be before the throne and that their position will be that they will be servants of him. And it's a different capacity than those that come to Christ beforehand. But they will be thankful for, look what it says in verse 16. It says, they shall hunger no more. Neither thirst anymore. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. Now notice that. Because all of the things that it tells us that they will no longer endure are things that they had to endure during the tribulation. It was during the third seal that it says that a quarter of the earth's population are killed with hunger. And no doubt some of these that are gathered died of the starvation that they suffered because they couldn't get food during the famine of the tribulation. They'll no longer hunger, but they went through the suffering of that part of the tribulation then. He says they will thirst no more. When we get to the time of the third trumpet, which hopefully we'll get to next week, it says that there's something that's cast into the sea and that most of the water on the planet is turned into wormwood or bitterness and therefore it's no longer able to be drunk, you know, and those that drink it will die from drinking it. And so there'll be severe thirst as a result of the plague that follows the third trumpet, this judgment of God. And no doubt there are those that will be there before the throne in this scene that died of that thirst because they weren't able to drink the waters that were made bitter. But he says they will thirst no more. He says also that neither shall the sun light upon them nor any heat. By the time we get to the fourth bowl judgment in Revelation chapter 16 verses 8 and 9, it tells us that during that time the sun will be given power to scorch men with fire and that men will be scorched with great heat. And no doubt there are some that are there of the tribulation saints that suffered the plague of the sun being heated to that degree where the atmosphere may be dissolving the ozone layer where they're scorched with the fire from the sun and the heat that came from it and now they're there before the throne so not only do these hold a lesser position to those that get raptured that call upon the lord beforehand but also it implies that they're going to suffer the plagues and the tribulations of the tribulation that they'll feel the heat of the sun they'll hunger in the starvation of the famine 
and they'll thirst due to the bitterness of the waters. But yet they can be saved and they'll be brought into the fold. And it says in verse 17, for the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. Can you believe the grace of God? And shall lead them into living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? The lamb will lead. You don't usually picture that, do you? Can you picture a lamb leading someone around? But the lamb of God, he called himself the great shepherd. And yet he became a lamb. And now he's the lamb that can lead. He's able to lead us. People say, what's this deal with the tears in heaven? To wipe away the tears from their eyes. Well, how can he wipe away tears if they're not there? And if they're in heaven, then why are there tears? There will be tears in heaven. And I believe that this group will be the ones that will shed the bulk of them. Because as they're there before him and they see him as he is, and they perceive the wounds that he still bears, the marks of the cross that he bore for their sin. And they realize the grace that was available to them throughout their whole life. And then as they consider that they scoffed at the call of the Christians to come. And they put off making that decision to surrender their lives to Christ because of the things that they wanted to live for on earth. And as they see and realize what they've missed out on. The position, the capacity that they could have the blessing that would last with them for all of eternity, that they will no longer be able to be a part. They'll be there. And the tears will be wiped away. And they'll be in the joy of the Lord for all of eternity, that they're in heaven. But forever they will carry the knowledge of what could have been had they surrendered their lives to Christ prior to the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ. God will wipe away the tears, but there will be regret when they realize what could have been had they softened their heart just that little bit sooner. We take our kids to Chuck E. Cheese and they are enthralled by the stuff that's in those glass cases there. A box of four Korans, a bowl full of multicolored spider rings, Jelly bracelets. And if you get the grand prize, 6,000 of those little tickets, you could get a super soaker water gun. And so these kids, their jaws drop as they see these incredible prizes that are set before them. And they say, oh, dad, please, can we get some tokens? Can we get some tokens? We say, sure, we'll get some tokens. And so, you know, you know, the thing comes out and you fill their little cups and they go around, they're playing skee ball and they're trying to pop the balloon and they're trying to hit the button when the light comes right to the thing and you see the tickets spilling out and then the one kid, he gets 99 tickets and the siren goes off and the tickets start spitting out of the machine and all the other kids in the place come running over and they're watching the jackpot and they're looking at the kid and they're looking at the tickets starting to pile back and forth on the floor and they're going oh how did you, i've been trying to do that all day how did you get it you know and, and this whole thing and then they go over to the ticket munger it's time to cash in and so they go over and they put the little ticket in, and you hear the thing chomping and you see the number flaring it's just going up into the gazillions of tickets you know and then finally the child that couldn't even walk anymore they had so many tickets Gets 452 num- you know, tickets on their little receipt. And they take it up to the counter. And the other kids go, wow, 400. If only I could. And that child, so rich in tickets, walks out of that place with a model airplane. <laughs> a frisbee with the face of Chucky. And two pencils. (laughs) And the parents look on. And they say this is useless junk. And it's going to end up in the useless junk drawer eventually. And then those same parents that 
take that useless junk and put it in the useless junk drawer. They go out and they're enthralled by the new model that just came out. The 2012. Did you see the grill? The dashboard display? The iPhone G400 is out. Can you believe what this can do? And the showcase begins to attract them. And so what do they do? They begin to pour forth all of their energy to try to get tickets. Not tickets with the face of Chucky, but tickets with the face of George Lincoln. Benjamin Franklin. Oh, I hit the jackpot and the sirens going off and the hundred dollar bills are spitting out of the paycheck, you know, out of the ATM machine. And all the other parents come over and they say, oh, how did you hit it so big? How did you make it? Oh, I've been trying to do that my whole life. And then they get their big stack. They can barely walk because they have all their tickets and they cash it in and they get it. They do the brand new Honda Accord, you know, the V6 Accord. They get it. They got it. And everybody looks on. But God looks from heaven and he says it's useless junk. Because from his perspective, he can see the new car lot and he can also see the junkyard where it's going to end up. And he sees the citizens of planet Earth pouring their lives, their affections, and their energies into these tickets to buy things that are going to dissolve with a fervent heat. And there will be many in that day that heard the plea of the Christian saying, come to the waters of life. Come to the fountain. Come to the one that lasts. Come to the everlasting God. But they say, no, I can't because it will mean I have to give up this or I have to give up that. Listen, it's useless junk. And there will be many that have their tears wiped away in heaven because they realize they gave their energy, their time, and their life to uselessness. And they'll realize what they could have had. As we close, I wonder if there's anyone here tonight that this is your last chance, maybe. This is the last chance before the rapture that you have to get on the side of Christ. To be called a part of the bride. To be in that number of those that sit with him in his throne. That know him in the most intimate way that are the closest to the center of everything. And you have yet to respond and say, yes, I want to be included in that. I want my sins forgiven. I want to know him. I want to live for that which lasts. And I just give you a chance before we close in prayer here tonight. Is there anyone here that you say, yes, you know, I want to accept Christ. I want to know Jesus. I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to be a part of the bride of Christ. If that's you here tonight, just lift up your hand and say, you know what? I want to know Jesus. I know he's been calling me. I know that I need to be saved. And I know that we're in the last days. I can feel it. God bless you. I see you. He's willing to save. The spirit and the bride say come. Let him that is a thirst come. And drink freely of the waters of life. That you may truly live. Father we just thank you tonight. For the truth of your word. That these things are revealed to us. That they haven't been kept in the shadows. And that you didn't leave us to live an aimless life. Just taking our cues and directions from those around us. We ask you to help us Lord. The vortex of this world system is so strong. The impression that it leaves upon us. And the lusts that it conceives within us. They can be so powerful. And I pray in Jesus' name that tonight, Lord, you would break us from the affections and lusts of this planet and that we could live completely for you. We thank you, Father, for the grace, for the blood, for the cross that calls us in. And give us wisdom, Lord, 
As we leave this place, give us wisdom. Father, give us the perspective to understand and know what it is that we've been called to. The privilege that we have. The glory that awaits. And may it fill us with hope. Living hope. May we be filled with the fullness of God tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.